Hello and welcome to What The Lux with me, Fred Moore. And me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, brand and experience design consultancy headquarters in London. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. And alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and experiences. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Robin Chadda to our podcast today. Robin is not only a brilliant entrepreneur, but also a dear friend. He started off in the nightlife business with a club in Amsterdam called Rain. But Robin's built something truly unique with Citizen M, and it's been going since 2008. It was described by the FT as stylish, high-tech, and cheap. And I can't wait to find out more about Citizen M's take on luxury, especially with the importance it places on design, music, and comfort. Robin, can you just tell us a little bit about your background? How did you end up as the CMO at Citizen M? And can you just touch a little bit on your life in the world of nightclubs as well? I figured you want to touch upon that. First of all, thanks for having me on the uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I'm Robin Chada. I am the uh, chief brand officer for Citizen M. Been with the company since uh, inception, obviously. I have an Indian father. I have a Dutch mother, and I have an American education. You can hear that still in my accent. I was uh, born and raised in uh, the Netherlands, outside of Amsterdam. I then moved to the U.S. for my university years and stayed on uh, working there for a couple of years as well. My first job was on Wall Street on the New York Stock Exchange, where I learned that money is not everything. I just didn't love what I was doing. I'm more of a creative guy. And uh, I left Wall Street after about a year. Then I moved into fashion, which is also where my roots come from, which we'll touch upon later. And I worked for Tommy Hilfiger in New York, for Tommy Jeans. And there I realized that I love the fashion industry and everything it stands for. I just, I couldn't find myself uh, really at home at Tommy. It was a very kind of, you know, corporate culture. Then I went back to the Netherlands. I worked for my father's company, which was called Mex, uh, where I did kind of a one-year internship around every single department on the retail side of the business. I did the same then on the uh, on the back side of the business, more on the production side, which was a lot of fun. Ended up living in Istanbul for three, four months, launching a denim collection. Ended up on the product side. Mex was then sold in 2001 to an American company called Liz Claiborne, and then I decided to... Uh, to branch out on my own. And I'd always been fascinated with hospitality. Uh, whenever we would travel to a new city, the first thing I would do is go to the newest hotel or nightclub or bar or restaurant to see what they've done. Uh, so I decided together with a business partner of mine to open a restaurant cocktail bar slash nightclub called Rain, which we opened in 2005 in the center of Amsterdam. Let's just put it this way. It was a hell of a lot of fun. I was 27 years old, but we offered something very unique. It was really ahead of its time, I would say. We were doing molecular gastronomy in 2005. You know, we had uh, all the uh, cocktail shakers flown in from London because you guys were way ahead of, uh, of that compared to Amsterdam. We had DJs flying in from all over the world. So we had some great parties. Uh, we sold that in 2008, partially also because I was already busy with Citizen M, uh, which was uh, at that time called One Star is Born. That was our code name. And that's where I am still today. So that's a little bit my, my background. So you're an Indo-Dutch citizen of the world at various junctures can relate to the world of fashion, to the, new, the world of New York banking, Amsterdam nightlife, and now the very global world that is the world of hotels. Well, I'll take you back a little bit to like our inception. Why did we do this? So my father, who's actually uh, the founder of the company, he, uh, of course, had this fashion business, which uh, he built with a bunch of his friends uh, over you know, 20, 25 years. And at any given time, there were about 100 designers working at Mex. There was Mex men, Mex women, Mex kids, Mex baby, Mex shoes, all the accessory lines. And all these designers would travel the world. Uh, they would go to you know, LA, New York. They would go to Paris Fashion Week, to Tokyo, etc. But Mex had a very strict travel budget. 
uh, I think you could spend, I think it was around 150 euros per night on a hotel. And that was really the max. If it was 151 euros, you had to share with a colleague. So what happened was you had all these, you know, let's say really young contemporary designers going to Paris Fashion Week, hoping to stay in the center of town at a real cool lifestyle hotel, but the budget didn't allow for that. So they ended up staying outside of the city center in a nondescript hotel, and they came back with these long faces. And that's where the, let's say, the light bulb moment was for Gautam. He said, you know, why has this industry never been disrupted? And we'd seen disruption, of course, in fashion, right? With H&M, with Zara. Uh, we'd seen it in uh, in air travel with EasyJet. I still remember the the, the ads, you know, the ATL. It was uh, Amsterdam to Lisbon, 9.95. The whole world was upside down. Like, how is that possible, you know? So that was a little bit the... Uh, let's say the inception point, really to look at this traditional industry, to find points of entry, uh, to disrupt, to create something that was really hybrid. So offering something that was very luxurious and lifestyle oriented, but at a at an affordable price. Really looking at today's travelers, what do they want from a great hotel and what don't they need from a bad one? And then it was really fun. We just made a list of, you know, we took a blank piece of paper and we started listing out things that frustrated us when we traveled. Long, long queues, you know, uh, when checking in all these different room types, uh, hidden costs. Back then, of course, Wi-Fi was being charged per device, uh, movies, uh, phone calls. I mean, even today, mini bars. I'm not sure who makes the pricing for mini bars, but you know, I can go down to the bodega on the corner and get a can of Coke for 50 cents, and in the hotel, it costs seven pounds. And we said, okay, let's find answers for all these things. And then we started, of course, investigating and seeing why this had never been done before, also looking at the industry in a more holistic uh, macro sense. And we saw that you know, most hotel Companies are just operators. They don't own their real estate, which means you get a very fragmented brand experience. And here in Amsterdam, for example, you have two Hiltons. One is in the center of town. Uh, it's an older property built in the 70s. But you, when you walk in there, it really feels like luxury. Marble floors, beautiful bouquet of flowers. They're scenting in the space. There's a guy playing the piano. It's classic luxury, but you recognize it. And then you go to the Hilton at the airport, and it's like you've entered Star Trek. Super contemporary, blue neon light. So there's no consistency in the brand at all. And we said, okay, we really, if we do this, we want to really build a consistent brand experience. So we have to also be the owner and the operator. So we own the majority of our real estate, which allows us to uh, control the brand from start to finish. That's really interesting. Your, your comment on consistent brand experience, I think, is an important one, particularly in the context of a customer or client who perhaps is less consistent, and I think a lot more flexible than they perhaps once were 10 years ago. You know, I think we're not constrained by our demographic or our wealth classification anywhere near as much as we used to be. Can you talk to us a bit about the Citizen M guest? Yeah, so people always ask me that. So what are are your standard demographics? I always reply with the same answer. So it's not about your demographics, so you know, what's your age or, you know, where you come from, etc. It's really actually about What's inside of you? Uh, I always take my father as an example. You know, he's super young at heart. He's 73 years old, but if we're in Saint Tropez, he's probably later in the nightclub than I am. You know, so it's not about age. Uh, I always say that our our customers are are value conscious. Uh, so what does that mean? Of course, they're urban, they're they're frequent travelers, they're contemporary, they're well informed, but they're value conscious, meaning they have disposable income to spend, but they spend it very wisely on things that are important to them. And that could be different for me or, or for you. Um, so I always like the, the phrase, they travel by train, but they also drink champagne. Right? Getting from A to B, my, I don't need an Uber. You know, I can just take the train or the tram, and it's very efficient and cost efficient. It gets me there on time. 
But when I get to the bar, I'm not going to compromise on what I'm drinking. Or it's the girl who's only wearing H&M or Zara, but she has a Chanel bag because that's important to her. Or there's a guy who's wearing, you know, just a plain white t-shirt, pair of Levi's, which he's had in his closet for five years, but he's wearing a Rolex or a super expensive designer fragrance. So they spend on things that are important to them. And that's where Citizen M comes in very nicely. That's uh, kind of the answer to them. So if you're in cities like New York or London or Paris, where hotel rates are, you know, especially in the luxury sector, easily $1,000 a night, why would you spend that money when you're not really going to be spending much time in that hotel room? I'd rather have same location, you know, the same lifestyle experience, but having money left over in my pocket for shopping, for F&B, for Ubers up and down to the airport, etc. Have you ever had a laughably unreasonable request from a guest, either to Citizen M or to your nightclub? Oh, we've had many. <laughs> we've had many. What's the most ludicrous? We had um, P. Diddy doing his uh, album release party uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, he... Uh, he sent some of his guys to the club beforehand, his security, et cetera, et cetera, and had a whole list of demands. I mean, it was ridiculous. So he wanted to have, of course, he wanted to have money, number one, to, have, to host the, uh, the party there. He wanted to have, you know, specific beverages. Then he started getting into specifics about food. So he wanted chocolate-covered strawberries, only white chocolate. Then he had a whole list of narcotics that he wanted to provide for him. And at that moment, I said, well, that's not going to happen. You're in Amsterdam. You go find it yourself. And <laughs> But quite, quite crazy, really like a rider, you know? The only thing I was missing was just the blue M&Ms. And in the hotels, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, the one nice thing that we do is we do these things called random acts of kindness in the hotels. Whereas in, in any bar, imagine you go to your bar once a week, you know, it's your local hangout, your local pub, you know the bartender, you're, you're going to get a free beer from time to time, right? The problem is if the, if, the, if the waiter who gives you the free beer gets caught, he's not allowed. So uh, at Citizen, we have a button on the POS, which is called random act of kindness. Again, going back to that empowerment of our ambassadors, they can give you anything they want. You know, and that's not only like food and beverage or giving a beer away or a cocktail. They can give your whole your whole stay away for free. But that's just the beginning of it. So they really go above and beyond. So if they know you're coming in for an anniversary, they'll go as far as to fill your room up with balloons, put a bottle of champagne in the room, a you know, handwritten card from the team, maybe even a picture and a frame that's sitting on your desk already of you and your fiance. So those are the kind of the happier ones, but we've also had really kind of heavy ones, especially like during the terrorism attacks in uh, Edborough Market, for example, that we really had our team stand up and, you know, get everyone in the hotel. It doesn't matter if they're hotel guests or not, had blankets, started making hot chocolate for people, keeping them safe indoors. We had somebody in New York, which uh, they were getting married. And the, I think it was a girl from Europe and she'd organize a makeup artist and a, and a hairdresser. And they didn't show up to the hotel. So one of our ambassadors actually went to one of the stores, bought all this kind of makeup and hair products and, and showed up at the door and said, listen, I'm not a hairstylist or a makeup artist, but let me let me try, uh, which was quite an amazing story. So yeah, those are the things that also uh, you know, really resonate, not only the strange requests, but also the beautiful requests, the real human side of hospitality, you know, that really comes across. That's really lovely to hear, but also just feels uncomfortable cannily on brand for citizen m so uh it's that uh, clearly the um, spirit of the brand lives on in the uh, in the actions of its team back in 2008 when you started you placed such an emphasis on creating a digitally enabled friction-free experience and you know we work a lot on hospitality and there's one thing i can say that i'm pretty sure no one would disagree with and that is most of the industries held hostage to very bad technology. Correct. How did you navigate that? I think we've always seen technology as an enabler, uh, not really much as a, as a differentiator. Um, 
And hotel technology sits in three different areas, right? You have the kind of commercial distribution technology, uh, you have the hotel systems, and then you have the guest-facing technology. And if the first two points aren't well set up, then you know you really need to have a contemporary architecture for data flow and general system connectivity. And otherwise, the third, the guest-facing tech will stay behind. And I think when we started, we really looked at the, that list of frustrations that I mentioned. And one of the frustrations was standing in line to check in. So there we said, okay, what's the answer to that? And we looked at airlines and we saw that they were just launching these self-check-in kiosks. So we asked ourselves the question, why can't we do that as well? And everybody told us it's impossible. You need a front desk. You need to take the passport and have them fill out the form. But we, we didn't listen to those people, obviously. And we, uh, I think we were the first company to have self-check-in terminals at our hotels, which we still have in all our hotels. And the only reason we did that, not to be techie, but to give the guests a one-minute check-in and a one-minute check-out. Same thing goes for the in-room technology. We said, okay, Wi-Fi has to be free. That's one thing we're going to do for sure. But what do we do when the room controls? Because most hotels will have a, you know, a TV remote control. Then they'll have a remote control for the lights or you know, they'll have switches for the lights. They'll have a, some kind of system to control the temperature, uh, which is not always the easiest thing to figure out. So we said, we want one device. One device that controls your blackout curtains, your lighting, your mood lighting, your television, your temperature, everything. Uh, so again, it was done from a guest point of view, uh, not from a tech point of view. I had always had the, let's say, the belief that we should launch an app only if we can really make a difference to the guest experience. And then COVID hit. So we fast-tracked the app. And I think we're the one of the first hotel companies to offer globally the uh, contactless uh, check-in and check-out, et cetera. And that, of course, now has maintained itself and uh, we've added new features to it. But uh, it's, again, from the guest point of view, I want to be able to Check into my room before I even reach the reach the hotel. I already want to know what room I'm in. I want to stream content from my phone to the large screen in the room. I want to be able to check out and see my folio on my phone. You see the industry catching up, obviously. I don't think it's going to be a huge differentiator uh, years from now. But I think we were, we had the first mover advantage. And we're going to keep on adding to the tech, but only if it makes a difference to the, to the guest experience. While you're about selling nights of sleep, you've also got an amazing focus on design, art, music. Can you talk us through your design journey? Because when you walk into a Citizen M, it really is a unique, albeit, as you mentioned before, consistent experience from one location to the next. I think we always set out to have a consistent brand. When we're doing a lot of the research, you know, I always like to look at what is, what's the ultra luxury segment doing? What is the budget segment doing? And uh, I was in Paris and I was just doing tours of all the luxury hotels there. Uh, so I went to the Crillon, I went to the Plaza Athene, I went to the George Sank, I went to the Ritz. And one thing stood out. They all looked exactly the same, <laughs> right? They all looked like, you know, Louis the Fifteenth or Louis the Sixteenth kind of styling and chandeliers and, you know. And uh, I think I wasn't the only one who saw that because George Sank, which is managed by Four Seasons, they also saw that, you know, that customers were not differentiating be- between products. So what they did was they hired this uh, florist called Jeff Lethem very famous florist out of Los Angeles. And they flew him to Paris and they said, listen, we're going to give you a million euros a year. And we want you to come back four times a year and to do an installation in the lobby. So you imagine that having to differentiate yourself by paying a million euros a year on flowers. Anyways, he did that. And now they become famous for it. When you walk into the George Sank around Christmas time, you see these beautiful sculptures. And, but, and, and they've you know done that now throughout the uh, portfolio. But we said, okay, we don't need to do that. Let's just make sure that our design is very, very, um, yeah, very differentiated. But also, how do we how do we do that? So the first thing we did was, okay, who should our furniture partner be? And we looked around and we saw Vitra, and we saw yeah, Vitra makes some of the best furniture in the world. Their art and actually every single piece of furniture that Vitra makes is uh, is an art piece in its own right. It's colorful, it's vibrant, it's fun. 
So we went to Vitra and we asked them, uh, you know, how would you like to have showrooms all over the world? They were like, oh, we already have showrooms. I mean, yeah, but showrooms that people are actually using your furniture. Imagine somebody lying in your Eames hawker chair and watching the football game with a beer in his hand. Uh, and they love the idea. So Vitra has been a, been a furniture partner since uh, since day one. We looked at the layout of the we call the living room. So it's, it's a multifunctional space for meeting, for reading a book, for you know watching the football game, as I said, for doing work, for having small meetings. And people really use it as such. Uh, and then we started looking at the brand design. So what should some of the signature features be? We have these cabinets, which are uh, always featured in all of our living rooms. And we said, well, let's fill those up with really amazing styling items. It should almost uh, emulate a very well-traveled person's home. You know, when you travel, you might pick up a beautiful vase from somewhere, but you also might pick up something very kind of, you know, quirky and, you know, ugly, but you still have it on one of your shelves. And that's also our key to localizing a little bit the styling. So if you go to our hotel in Boston, it's above the TD Garden where the Boston Celtics play. So we have a lot of sport paraphernalia, stuff like that in, in the styling concept. Art plays a pivotal role within the within the design. We started off with always having uh, commissioned art on the exterior of our buildings, uh, and that has now evolved to you know commissions on the inside of the buildings, on ceilings, on carpets. We always team up with local either art schools or institutions or museums to do the in-room art. And I think we've done over 150 art commissions across our 31 hotels, plus a very large collection of art. And we actually design our cabinetry around the art pieces that we buy specifically per hotel. The latest art piece that I'm very proud of is a piece by Jen Stark in our Miami Brickle Hotel, which is five huge panels on the facade of the building. Super colorful, a bit psychedelic, but it really makes the hotel stand out from a distance. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I, I mean, the brand design has evolved, like, just like any brand evolves as well. So when we started to where we are now, it has evolved, but it's still very recognizable. And I think if I were to blindfold you and put you in Taipei or LA or Copenhagen, and unblindfold you, you right away would recognize, hey, this is a citizen and hotel, without it being too much copy-paste. Robin, we're, we're all increasingly aware of the consequences of travel on the climate. I guess that's particularly relevant to business travel. How have Citizen M approached sustainability? Well, we have a vision. Our vision is to influence positive change in a world where we are simply guests. We've always kind of had that mantra, but we always said we have to do good to the communities that we're building these properties in, to our to our guests, uh, but also to the planet. We are quite efficient hotel, I would say. So our, our, our footprint is not drastic. And we've done the standard things, of course, like, you know, no single-use plastics, et cetera, et cetera. But the really nice thing about Citizen is that a lot of our hotels are built modular, which means that we build our rooms off-site. In a controlled environment, uh, we ship them to the destination and we stack them on top of each other. Uh, that leads to, of course, uh, faster build time, less on-time construction and construction waste, and some much cleaner build. And a lot of our hotels have uh, the LEED or the BREEAM certifications of gold or better. Another thing which we currently did is uh, we secured a sustainability loan, sustainable loan, uh, which is tied to specific ESG targets. So we're allowed to borrow this money from certain banks in order to fund our growth, but let really uh, tie to uh, specific ESG targets. We have an annual report that comes out uh, where we really take it seriously and looking at every single aspect of ESG, not only on the environmental side of things as well, it's available on our website. So it's something that's super important, especially moving forward. And we wanna yeah, build the, 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 the cleanest and most efficient buildings in the world actually, uh, without taking it to extremes. 
I mean, I mean the, the business is so successful and it's survived a financial crisis and COVID, which is a lot to go through, uh, all while trying to reinvent the conventions and industry. Are there any moments in that process where your heart's just sunk because a combination of things have gone wrong at the same time? I mean, I think for us, I mean, for me, uh, COVID was really, really, uh, I mean, imagine, I think at that time, because we did open quite a lot of new hotels at the time, but we had so many decisions to make. We had about, you know, I think it was eight or nine hotels under construction. What do we do? Do we stop them? Do we finish them? We had other ones which were about to start construction. We had hotels all around the world. What do we do with them? Do we keep them open? Do we close them? What do we do with our staff? Uh, we were trading at you know ninety plus occupancy as a portfolio, and you you all of a sudden are at zero. These are just unforeseen circumstances. So the first thing we did, of course, we just try to get control of the business. So the first two three months was all of us every single day, seven days a week, speaking to one another. What's going on here? What's going on in America? What's in Europe? What's in Asia? Until we had control, and then we could start making some decisions. We decided we will not close any of our hotels. We'll keep them all open. Uh, we'll keep all of our staff on the payroll. We'll make sure that we are open for essential workers. We will not turn into you know COVID ho- uh, hospitals and stuff like that, but we want to keep the hotels open. Uh, we will finish all our construction on hotels that are currently underway, and we'll wait with the ones that haven't started. So all these decisions were kind of made. We'll fast. We'll actually invest now in our technology in order to make sure that we uh, we have our app and we have full contact with stays going on. We re-looked re- look, re- at operations and from, from a room cleaning point of view. You can imagine people didn't want room attendants coming in and cleaning the rooms, so we thought of a solution for that. So, And then we started looking at, okay, how can we still drive a little bit of revenue? So we did something which was uh, quite interesting. I think it was uh, 100 nights at Citizen M for a fixed price where you could pay you know per month. And we had you know quite a lot of interesting things. People were living in our hotels coming down in their pajamas in the morning and we had some guys just storing all their like fishing gear in our Seattle hotel because it was cheaper than getting a getting a rental box but you know we started all just trying to do some fun things and then slowly you know as COVID started leaving us we uh, got back to business but yeah that was definitely the most stressful time we've had. Just from a leadership perspective how did you make decisions or, or when you, you suddenly have this barrage of quite complex decisions to make that impact all sorts of different departments and how do you deal with that as a leader? Well, at that time, we still had our strategic council, which was basically the heads of every department uh, coming together. And we'd always make those decisions together as a group. We were quite in sync uh, and, and still are, I would say. You know, I think we're a very, very tight-knit management team. We know how one another thinks and uh, we support each other. And the same held true for uh, during, during these tough times during COVID. So actually, that was not really much of a challenge. Are there any other industries that you find exciting at the moment outside of hospitality? Other industries outside of hospitality? I mean, I'm always still inspired, of course, by retail, you know, what's happening there, fashion, um, music, art. I mean, there's there's lots of things that are happening. And um, to name some particular brands, I don't know, but if you look at the hospitality space, I think that was one of the questions that you sent me as well. I mean, there's a few things that you see that it is overcrowded. You see that a lot of the independent lifestyle hotels, at a certain moment, they can't grow anymore, I guess mainly because of funding, and they get swallowed up by larger hotel companies. You saw that with, you know, Hoxton, 25 Hours, Mama Shelter, etc. But what I like is that you still see those founders of those companies continuing. You know, I think so you have Mob Hotel in Paris. And uh, I had a call, which was about a couple of couple of weeks ago, was a really cool company called Paradero out of Mexico. And their whole idea is to have something really hyper local. So built in Mexico, you know, beautiful design, 
And, you know, the guy who's making the tacos, he's, he's learned how to make those tacos from the woman in the, in the village. Uh, but what was interesting, they said that 80% of their clients are women, which I found quite interesting. Uh, so people really go there to, you know, unplug. They can have spa treatments. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very new way of looking at hospitality, really offering a kind of hyper-local experience. So, yeah, there's, th- there's lots still happening, which I like. You know, it, the industry never stands still. And I always look at other industries. What's been your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday. Oh my God, it's a tough one. Well, I haven't been on holiday in a while. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the first time we really kind of did a family holiday with, with my son. My wife was still pregnant of our daughter, but we went to uh, Anguilla, stayed there in the Four Seasons, which was a beautiful resort. And it was the first time I had an experience with a kids club, which was fantastic. You could, you could drop them there in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon. <laughs> it's quite nice. But yeah, I'm, I'm always a big fan of, you know, when, when I do go on holiday, I really want to unplug. I want to read. I want to not be on my phone, not be on my email, spend time, be present with the family. So I, I do usually prefer more beach holidays. That's usually, you know, around summertime and Christmas time. But uh, I always love a good city trip as well, you know. Uh, going to, I always look for inspiration. Whether it's New York or London or Paris, uh, you know, you have to keep traveling in order to keep your eyes open. Robin, we always ask our guests for outro questions. The first of which is, is there something that irritates you about your industry? It's just your personal bugbear. Oh, there's so many things. Just nothing with a customer first mindset. So I just was telling you before we started the podcast that I just came back from Berlin. I won't mention the name of the hotel, but uh, I arrived there and uh, I arrived there around two o'clock. So I figured, okay, check-in should be around, you know, two, three o'clock. And instead of me getting a nice warm welcome there, the woman said, your room's not ready. That's all she said to me. I'm like, okay, can I drop my bag? Can I already pay for the room? Can I already do a quick check-in? But I just got this really cold answer. And it just surprises me that, you know, in so many hotels around the world, they just don't understand that the customer is there, you know, to stay with you and you have to treat them, you know, like you would treat your best friend. And that's just forgotten. That's also forgotten in retail a lot of the times too, you know? So that's something that really, really irritates me. Um, Robin, what concerns you about the world that we're leaving our kids? There's a lot. I, I read an article in the, in the weekend uh, FT about uh, cell phones, you know, and your kids. Should you give your kid a smartphone? Yes or no? And I mean, luckily my kids are young enough that I don't need to give them a smartphone yet, but all the technology, all the AI, I think that worries me a lot just because, yeah, when I was a kid, I was outside. I was catching frogs. I was climbing trees. I was, you know, causing mischief outside and really being one with nature. And that's what concerns me the most, you know. I don't want my kids to not have that experience. I also don't want them to be, you know, uh, left behind when it comes to technology. So where is that balance? I worry about that. And I haven't really dove into AI that much yet. I find it a bit scary, but uh, we are looking at, of course, at Citizen M. And again, from a customer point of view, how could we, you know, make the experience better for them? But uh, those are things that would concern me going forward for sure. I think we're the guinea pigs for tech, really. I think when we have information that is contextual to the world around us rather than sitting within a screen that we peer down at, it will liberate us to use technology in a way that enhances our appreciation of life. And I would hope that when AI automates the things that the widget factory of life, it will open up our creative potential. One would hope. One, one would hope that our kids, or particularly your, yours and mine, all under the age of 10, will, will perhaps see that benefit rather than being caught in what feels like a quite transitionary period, in my opinion. Yeah, could be. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Let's hope for that. If Citizen M hadn't come into your life or, or if you hadn't brought Citizen M into the world, what do you think you'd be doing? Back to nightclubs? Good questions. Definitely not nightclubs, but definitely still in hospitality uh, and definitely focusing on building a, a global brand, you know, 
that's something that I wanted to do actually with the nightclub, but that uh, was very, very complex. And just to give you an idea, it was the opposite of Citizen M because we had about, you know, every Citizen M has between, let's say, 10 and 15 ambassadors working there, maybe five per shift. And we had 40 people on the payroll, excluding the chefs. We had the manager, nightclub, programming, DJs, entertainment, security. We had two cocktail bars. We had a restaurant. It was very, very complex, not easy to scale. So I would say I would, I would be doing something in hospitality. Or I would be doing something, I would say, when it comes to not, not necessarily retail as in bricks and mortar, but some kind of new brand, some kind of you know customer product, whether it's online or not, but something that's you know heavily branded, very differentiated, really having a point of view, uh, probably disruptive. I always like to look at things disruptively. Those are two things that come to mind. Robin, what are you most excited about in the next five years? What are you, what are you looking forward to? I'm still excited about Citizen M. So really growing Citizen M further. Yeah, I would say, you know, getting to 100 hotels, that would be super, super exciting. And seeing how the brand evolves and develops over time and really becoming that brand of choice. You know, when people look back maybe 10, 20 years from now on this era, with the likes of, you know, uh, you know, all the big tech companies, I want Citizen M to be on that list as well. And yeah, that was the hotel really disrupted things in the industry, a really you know, a pioneer when it came to that. And that's what we strive for every day. Um, so that's what I'm excited about, to keep building it, you know, keep evolving it, uh, keep looking for new opportunities, new partnerships, uh, evolving the guest experience, and, uh, and have fun. That's the most important thing. But I'm pretty sure you'll get there, Robin. Uh, thank you so much, and can't wait to see what's next for Citizen M. Thanks, buddy. It was great doing it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matraform and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matraform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time.